You're listening to TalkZone.com. Internet Talk Radio. TalkZone.com. Now, The Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Well, hi, and welcome to The Dr. Robbins Show, which is cutting-edge issues, controversies, and conundrums of the day. Uh, I'm here with my wife and co-host and social worker, Susie Robbins. If you want to email us at DocLarryRobbins at AOL, it's right on the website. You can click on it or DocLarryRobbins, D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. With any questions or issues, we can talk about them in future shows. Or you can just email us with any comments and we'll certainly read them. If there's any topics that you want to talk about, just let us know. Well, Suze, are you ready for today's show? I'm looking forward to it. Well, the first issue is a meaty topic that you're not going to believe. A doctor, believe it or not, was sanctioned for telling a woman that she's overweight. It's an unbelievable story. This New Hampshire doc, you may have seen this on TV or heard it on radio, he, he told a woman that she was obese and she needed to lose weight. She complained that it wasn't very nice, and she complained to the authorities, believe it or not. He was sanctioned even though he wrote an apology letter. And he's now refusing to take some course that the medical board suggested that he take. I guess it was a course on being nicer or something like that. What do you think about this? It's it's unbelievable. This fellow's name is Dr. Bennett. Uh, I saw him on TV, and he was terrific. He was a normal type guy. He says if, if he can't tell someone the truth as their doctor, what should he talk about? The weather? It gets worse and even more bizarre. Somehow, the state's attorney general, reminds me of the attorney general in the uh, Duke rape case, uh, getting into it for political reason. Somehow, the attorney general got into the, quote, investigation, unquote. Sheesh, talk about overkill. My gosh. What if I were to tell a patient that they should stop smoking? Will I get sued and indicted and reported? It's unbelievable. Well, Susie, uh, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, as you said, it certainly is a meaty issue. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking, first of all, that in the context of their conversation, it was doctor to patient. So, obviously, this doctor was talking to her in terms of helping her to become a healthier person. I think she probably overreacted, obviously, by going to a lawyer and... It seems to me that instead of expending all this energy on um, trying to sue this doctor, she should be using this energy in a more positive way for herself to get healthier. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I, I don't think she's actually sued uh, so far, or I don't, I don't know if she's going to sue. But how about the attorney general? Is this a criminal thing? The doctor tells her that she needs to lose weight, and all of a sudden it's a criminal issue. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, think about all the things that you've probably said over the year to your patients uh, in terms of helping them to become healthier or to make changes in their life. I'm sure you could certainly think of things that you have said that maybe to the wrong person they might take personally and become very angry with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they come to me for advice. I give them advice, and, uh, you know, we can't be, be held to it. Also, um, you're a social worker. It, say somebody's doing psychotherapy, and they give advice or say something. They shouldn't all of a sudden have the attorney general on their back if they say to somebody that they need to stop smoking or something. Absolutely, I agree with that, although as a social worker or a therapist, we certainly try not to, quote, give advice, but rather talk through issues with people so that they can come up with uh, the right plan for themselves. Whereas as a doctor, yes, you are more inclined to, quote, giving advice. And that's a great point, yeah. The distinction, um, I'm sitting there for 10 minutes as a physician, so I'm giving more direct advice. And uh, in therapy, I think therapy is great. I think the whole world probably needs therapy, but it's not where you go and get it. People have the wrong uh, notion of therapy, don't you think, that they're going to go and people are going to, uh, a therapist is going to tell them what to do. And that's not, uh, what does happen in therapy? Well, you know, there's this new uh, catch-all phrase, life coaching, and I actually like that phrase because I think in the best of all worlds, um, what people do need is to be able to 
make their own decisions for what they need to do or want to do in their lives. And for this particular individual that we're speaking of, um, she probably needs to talk to somebody and understand why is it that she reacted so angrily to this doctor who was trying to help her get on a healthier path. Yeah, absolutely. Is Well, my understanding is life coaching, it's a combination of maybe some therapy, but more advice and organization as opposed to when you go to somebody and you're in a depression or you want to work out childhood issues, which everybody has, it's not so much coaching, it's facilitating. That's right. Um, and we probably should make the distinction between, a, say, a life coach and a therapist. You know, I think when people do go into therapy, it's because of issues that maybe they're experiencing at that moment but probably have dealt with all their lives and they really need to just have somebody help, as you say, facilitate um, those issues with them and to be able to understand why they're feeling the way they are. Yeah, and also the uh, if you go to a therapist, they should be a licensed therapist, either a psychologist or a clinical social worker or a PsyD or psychiatrist, although these days most psychiatrists just do medicine, but some are still pretty good with therapy. As opposed to life coaching, I'm not sure that they have the stringent requirements. I, I know a number of people, usually the best life coaches are the therapists who turn coach, but I think that people can set themselves up as a life coach without all the qualifications. Do you think so? You know, I, I'm not sure in terms of people billing themselves as life coaches exactly what parameters are needed in terms of education. You know, another piece to it with life coaching would be helping an individual uh, figure out what kind of careers they want, and that certainly would not most likely fall under a therapeutic. Maybe more an educational life coach. Well, I think we'll segue on to um, our next topic du jour, which is a common one in the news, and there's new drugs and new treatments, ADD, attention deficit disorder. ADD is uh, a real condition. It's uh, pretty common. Almost 5% of adults have ADD. It tends to be somewhat underdiagnosed with millions of people having it, but uh, not that many people on treatment compared to how many people have it. Uh, the ADHD includes the H part for hyperactivity, but most people actually lose that hyperactivity by age 20 if they had it at all, uh, that fidgety portion. But ADD is, is very genetic. Whenever I have a kid or an adolescent with ADD or even an adult, we screen family members. One of the biggest problems with kids not taking their ADD medicine is that mom who's in charge of the medicine, has ADD herself and can't get it together with uh, the medicine. Uh, a lot of times a mom comes in and says, my daughter Heather, for instance, um, my daughter Sally was uh, diagnosed with ADD and I think I have it. And it's funny, I don't ask her, have you taken her medicine? I ask, what dose of the medicine actually works for you? Because it's amazing how many moms will take their kids' medicines, how many dads, how many spouses take each other's medicines. It's um, sort of scary in this country. We mix and match sometimes. Before we get into exactly what is ADD and what to do about it, Suze, do uh, you have any thoughts on it? I agree that it is. seems like it's become very pervasive in our society. It seems like we all know children uh, who are taking medicine for it, and certainly it follow into adulthood. I'm just wondering, is it on a continuum the way other disorders are? Um, you know, sometimes I know for myself I'll think, oh, my God, these closets are such a mess, and I can't seem to get it together to clean them out. Um, can everybody or can many people have a little bit versus a lot? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the trend in um, medicine these days is to go to the spectrum disorders. We have the bipolar spectrum disorder where the severe bipolar end is about 1% of the population, but if you look at the spectrum, the milder end, it's probably about 4%. We have the autism spectrum disorder, ASD, which is the whole spectrum of mild, moderate, and severe autism. But with ADD, we haven't talked about it that much. There are Certainly everybody has features of ADD. Maybe I'll go into a little how we diagnose it. Really, the um, hallmark of ADD is a number of things. Difficulty doing boring subjects. I, if I had to ask one question, I ask an adult, did you have a lifelong or starting at age 8 or 10 trouble with boring projects? Because if people can sit there for an hour on a boring homework assignment or boring project, it's unlikely they have ADD. But careless mistakes, uh, trouble starting projects, trouble finishing them, 
uh, trouble finishing homework assignments. Kids very often don't turn them in. Irritability, impulsivity, unfinished piles of stuff around, materials laying around. Uh, these are some of the um, some of the hallmarks of ADD. Uh, easily distracted, poor attention, difficulty remem- remembering appointments, and the irritability and anger can be a problem with. Um, ADD, but how we diagnose it is we talk to family members, we talk to teachers, we talk to spouses, we talk to the person. I have people read a book. Um, there's a lot of books out there on adult ADD, for instance, and there's some good screening tests like the ASRS, which is the Adult Self-Report Scale. It's just nine questions on ADD, and it's fairly accurate. Depending on how people score, we diagnose them as unlikely to have ADD or likely or definitely positive. Suze, uh, what do you think? First of all, I think that thinking of it in terms of a disorder for children must be very, very frustrating, not only for the parents, but also the child herself. Um, Certainly they're trying to work as hard as they can, but they seem to have like these roadblocks that they just can't get it together to get that homework done on time or to be able to sit quietly and listen, listen to the teacher in the classroom. And obviously then their grades will suffer. Uh, and certainly this disorder has nothing to do with intelligence. I almost think of it as like just like a roadblock. It just They just can't get, they can't finish the race. They try to get um, the job done, but they can't. And then most likely their, um, their grades do suffer, and that's probably a blow to their self-esteem. Yeah, I think that's a very good uh way of looking at it. The uh, consequences of untreated ADD are enormous. If you look from age 16 to 20, there's like nine times more likelihood in kids with ADD of car accidents. Now, there's still increased chance, even if they're treated, of car accidents uh, because they tend to be spacey and not paying attention and distracted. But uh, if they're untreated, it's uh, much higher. They have uh, a lot more higher likelihood of drug abuse of alcohol abuse as an adult or early adult, and uh, also ending up in jail. Uh, kids with untreated ADD uh, don't finish college nearly as often. So there's a lot of consequences. Self-esteem is one. People's lives tend to, to fall apart. We always think of ADD as a serious problem in kids, but actually the consequences at age 25 or 30 are enormous. Because instead of, you know, if you're in second grade and you're distracted, you will fall behind. It, it is a serious consequence, but nothing earth-shattering happens. You can catch up if it's caught and treated. But at age 25 or 30, people tend to be impulsive with ADD. They quit their jobs easily. They lose their jobs. They lose their house. They lose their families. And the consequences are more devastating. And the impulsivity, if you had to look at one thing with ADD, it's the impulsivity is a big problem. Uh, if that's not getting better around age 20 or so, we can be in trouble because impulsivity at age 7 or 8, uh, kids will run across the street or do this and that, jump off the uh, jungle gym. But at age 25, we have drug abuse with impulsivity or I think I'll get married today. Okay, whoever I'm going to get married to. Or I think I'll go gamble uh, a whole lot of money or shopaholic. So, um, you know, excessive shopping is not actually a diagnosis, but... Very often there's underlying psychiatric problems or psych- like ADD or sometimes others. Well, it seems to me that early diagnosis then is very important. Um, you know, certainly when a child is sitting in a classroom and a teacher notices um, behavior that she can then talk to the parents and, you know, together as a team, the parents, the teacher, and a doctor can help this child um get the help he needs uh, specifically with medicine and or therapy. As the child uh, matures then and gets into his or her 20s, it's going to be a lot harder to get a diagnosis, and then that's most likely going to set that person up um, for more frustrations in his adulthood. Yeah, isn't it like a lot of things where early early intervention uh, before major problems uh, you know, if somebody's 22 and they've fallen way behind in school and um, they're into drug abuse, et cetera, diagnosing the ADD may not be as effective as at age 8. That's very true, and I would imagine that for uh, 
these adults in their early adulthood, it must feel very frustrating because they really just don't know why they're having these problems. And, you know, they don't, haven't been able to get the help that they need. So they just kind of continue this spiraling in a way of, of problems. You know, they always say about ADD that they work twice as hard for half as much. And some of the kids who are bright can compensate where if they do homework till one in the morning and do four hours to do an hour and a half worth, they do end up still with A's. Uh, but as time goes on in school and in college, it becomes tougher and tougher. There are some good resources. Uh, there's a couple organizations, and I found a good magazine, actually, in uh, Borders. It was ADD Etude. It was more geared towards adults' attitude. Uh, but I thought it was actually pretty good. And the question is, how do we really treat it? Therapy, medicine, um, there was an interesting NIH study, multi-million dollar study, a few years ago that was sort of discouraging as far as non-medicine treatments. They put a huge amount of money into every student in the study outside of medicine and concluded that only the medicines did any good. Uh, the therapy and having a psychologist, social worker with a student all year even, one-on-one, didn't do that much good. But I think that uh, social workers, psychologists who are adept with ADD and parents can really help, particularly with parent coaching, because parents need to take a little different approach with ADD. Suze? Well, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking that this is a disorder that clearly, isn't it true that um, with ADD and ADHD that uh, just as many girls are afflicted with it as boys? Well, yeah, girls tend to be underdiagnosed a bit because, well, classically we think of them as having less hyperactivity. But interestingly, there was a recent study that showed that girls had just as much hyperactivity as boys. Um, And from age 15 to 20, most of the kids lose most of their fidgetiness, hyperactivity by age 20. It's really the attention problems that are the bigger problems. The hyperactive little boys can be a problem for the parents um, and teachers and schools, and we don't always educate them very well because we're educating them the same as the girls who sit and are quiet and uh, pay attention, and the little boys are all over the place, so it's a tough thing. I don't want to blame the schools because it's very tough with money and with resources and everything, but the girls can get overlooked. Uh, I've had a number of women in my practice who are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old who all of a sudden discovered that they have ADD. Now, you had to have had it as a kid. You can't all of a sudden start having an attention problem as an adult, and it's ADD. It can be something else. It could be depression, anxiety, uh, dementia. It could be um, just worrying and medicines and just having trouble with attention. But people had to have had it as a kid to uh, diagnose it as ADD. Now, how about parenting and medicines? What about parents and medicating their children? I'm sure it runs the gamut. Some parents, out of their own frustration and or concern for their children, want to medicate their their kids right away. Uh, I have a friend who's a teacher and has a few kids in her classroom. These are third graders whose parents do not want to medicate their children with ADD and it makes for a very difficult classroom where there's kids that are jumping out of their seats all the time and aren't listening, and where other parents then get frustrated because so much time is spent trying to control these kids. True, true. You know, so much time is spent on one or two kids out of the 20 in the classroom, even when they have an aide. It's a tough problem. I think that parents of kids with ADD, uh, it, where it's more than mild, have a tough time. It's just like parents of kids with bipolar or parents of kids with autism. Our goals are different. Our parenting has to be different. I think some life coaching, parenting coaching can actually help in reading about it because it's a tricky thing with kids with ADD and with the impulsivity. Well, maybe some parents are concerned that medicating their children might actually um, give their kids side effects down the road, and I'm not sure myself if if there is a concern with that. Well, it's interesting. Um, A lot of parents do uh, avoid medication or are fearful of medication, but when you look at those consequences that we talked about a minute ago of ADD that's untreated with the drug abuse, with jail time, with... 
uh, just they end up not doing very well in life, I think the consequences of not treating are worse. And if you look at the medications, the stimulants are the number one medication, first-line medicines, uh, for instance, like Adderall, Ritalin type. Uh, these have been around a long time. Adderall amphetamines have actually been around since about 1900, uh, long, long time. Ritalin methylphenidate was introduced in 1954. I always remember 1954 because that's the year that I was born, showing you what an old fogey I am. But um, the stimulants are the number one treatment because they're the most effective. And there's various forms. There's short-acting, like Adderall or the generic and Ritalin. Then there's long-acting, Adderall XR, which is a nice, smoother, longer-acting form and Ritalin LA or Focalin are longer actings. And they just came out with a patch of Ritalin that lasts 9 to 12 hours. It's only technically indicated in kids. And I haven't used the patch. It just came out. It's called Daytrana. But I think it um, theoretically should be pretty good. Now, the side effects of the stimulants are quite a bit. Uh, quite a number of kids have annoying side effects, like they lose their appetite, or sometimes they're nervous or sometimes get really tired and crash, uh, sometimes can't sleep. And uh, these are what we call Schedule two medicines, so they're more controlled. Some kids do abuse them. They give them to friends. They sell them. Uh, the Adderall and amphetamines have been crushed and snorted. So there is abuse of these. In adults, we find relatively little abuse of these medicines for some reason. Uh, they really, I haven't had uh, almost any abuse. The question in then is what to do if people cannot take the first-line stimulants or it's not appropriate. We have a whole host of other things that we use for second-line. You know, as far as the abuse of the drugs, uh, the the uh, Ritalin, Adderall-type drugs, uh, Susie, you were, um, one of your jobs was school social worker working with kids who had problems with drugs. Uh, what do you think about the abuse of Adderall? Or did you see it in all your kids or... What was the case? Well, I did. Now, I want to clarify and say that this was a high school that I was working in. And, yes, um, there were kids who were selling their Adderall to other kids, you know, to make some money, and the kids who were purchasing it were then getting getting high off of it. I would not say that it was a huge concern, or certainly not as many kids were doing that as were drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana. Yeah, so it, it is a concern with uh, these drugs, the abuse, but uh, it shouldn't. I don't think it should keep us from prescribing them. Absolutely. Um, one concern that did come up quite a bit, though, is when somebody would use somebody else's Adderall in conjunction with other drugs, say taking the Adderall or Ritalin and then also uh, drinking a lot of alcohol. It could become quite concerning um, that this person was going to really hurt himself. Sort of that up and down, like alcohol and uh, don't they have they have an alcohol and caffeine drink or so? It doesn't make much sense to me, but I think it's actually you can buy it. It's sort of like not Red Bull, but you know, like a Red Bull type with alcohol. Sounds like a terrible idea, actually. Actually, John Belushi ended up dying of with speed balls, with where he was injecting. Highs and lows. He was injecting amphetamines and heroin. So I guess you get the uh, the high and the low, and it's the buzz. What a lot of people do is they abuse uppers and amphetamines, and then use or cocaine, and then they use uh, heroin or alcohol or downers to uh, take the edge off as they're coming down. But uh, back to the ADD meds. Um, you know, if you can't take, if people can't take the stimulants or kids can't, there are a whole host of other Stratera. Uh, from Lilly is a newer one that basically looks like an antidepressant. Um, we use Wellbutrin, which is an antidepressant, and some of the other older antidepressants we use. And also, it's off-label, but sometimes uh, Provigil has been used, which is a medication that's used for excessive daytime sleepiness. It's definitely off-label. Unfortunately, for most of these medicines, it's off-label for ADD, except for the Stratera as the second line, but I don't think Stratera works nearly as well as uh, the stimulants. Suze? You know, I've been hearing more and more of this term off-label. It's been uh, making its way into the newspapers lately. Can you clarify what exactly off-label means? 
Well, off-label, when drugs come on the market, uh, the company goes for one indication or two indications, say depression or anxiety, or they'll go for pain. But then once it becomes on the market, it's evident that it's useful for uh, several other conditions, and that's, quote, off-label, unquote. And it doesn't mean that it's bad to use it that way. In fact, many drugs, off-label prescribing is 90% of the use because they're really more useful for those things than for what it came on the market for. But 10 and 20 years ago, we had off-label, nobody even thought about uh, legally or Department of Regulations off-label prescribing because it was normal. Now, people at doctors are getting sued, they're getting sanctioned. Uh, there's this whole big thing about not saying anything off-label at lectures. I give a lot of lectures. I give about 70 lectures a year. And 10 years ago, we could talk about anything uh, and try to really educate the doctors and the medical residents. Now, we have to be so careful. Scarily enough, uh, there was a big article in uh, the paper, this doctor from out east psychiatrist, believe it or not, is being indicted for promoting a drug off-label. They're trying to get at the company, so they're going through this doctor who is giving lectures. But he finished a a lecture, comes off the podium, comes down, and the FBI handcuffs him and uh, puts him in uh, the cards. It's sort of unbelievable. You know, I do want to finish the ADD section on somewhat of a positive note. Most people who are treated uh, do very well, a lot better than before they were treated. It's mostly recognizing ADD, but uh, we're recognizing it quite a bit better than uh, we used to. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Hi, and welcome back to the Dr. Robbins Show, cutting-edge issues and controversies with my wife and co-host, social worker Susie Robbins. Now, we'll start off today with an herbal topic, which is medicinal herbs. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they indifferent? Pluses and minuses. Do they work? The problem with herbs is really a number of them, uh, and I do use quite a bit of herbs in my practice. We use feverfew, we use patatalex for headaches, I use sleeping herbs, but do they really work? Uh, quality control, it's not that there's really bad farms or good farms, it's just there's different in, in soil content, there's differences in species, Weather, if something's grown in Portland, it's going to be different than in Missouri. And interestingly enough, a number of companies, prominently Consumer Reports, did um, surveys where they took 10 popular herbs and they took a number of preparations of that herb and they tested them. And they found varying degrees, widely varying degrees, of the active ingredient of each herb in each bottle. On average... If the bottle listed, say, 100 milligrams of the active ingredient, on average it only had 20. Some had zero, and some did have the 100, but on average it only had 20% of the active ingredient. There's generally a lack of good studies. You have a lot of anecdotal reports out there on TV and in the newspapers and magazines. For some reason, we've had very little oversight of the herbs. They can basically end up claiming anything about anything with some restrictions, but not that much. There are some herbal interactions, and some of the herbs have as many interactions as the drugs. For instance, St. John's wort, where the active ingredient is hypericin, uh, this is for depression. It does work for mild depression. There's been a number of reasonably done studies, but it does have the same sort of interactions as some of the antidepressants with skin sensitivity to the sun, with other drug interactions, etc. Now, it's not as if I um, am anti-natural or anti-herb. I'm pro anything that works. I don't care if it's a drug or an herb. And in fact, I'm a fellow of the American Integrative Medicine Society which does natural things and herbs. I just don't like the the public to be fooled, to waste their money, and uh, worse, to be injured by things that haven't been tested all that well. We also have a number of herbs for various conditions. It actually hasn't been a great year for herbs. Echinacea for colds was used for, well, actually since about 1955, 1960, they sold billions billions of dollars of echinacea. And they did a remarkable study earlier this year. Uh, this is a multi-million dollar study where they put people, 
uh, it was 400 people, I believe, in each group or so, into a hotel room for a week. They gave them the cold virus, and then half got placebo and half got the echinacea, and they measured every cough, every symptom of the cold, every sniffle. Amazing study to give people the cold virus and put them in a hotel room for a week. But at the end of the week, the echinacea didn't work any better than placebo, which was disappointing, of course, to echinacea fans and certainly disappointing to echinacea producers. Um, but it's been that way. Vitamin E bit the dust as a natural remedy earlier this year. Uh, there were several studies that people with vitamin E actually got more heart problems. Uh, saw palmetto for uh, a large prostate has not been shown to do all that much recently. And so it's not been a great year for a number of herbal preparations. We also have Western versus Eastern herbs. And my impression is that the Chinese herbs and the Eastern herbs tend to maybe work better, but I'm not sure what's in there. We just have the Chinese writing on there. And uh, in some quality control studies, what's been in there has not been what they claim is is on there. So if quality control is a problem with our Western herbs, it's even more of a problem with the Eastern herbs. In, pa- in fact, not too many years ago, there was a big scandal where there was this one herbal preparation out of China that was helping everybody. And they confiscated over a million cases of it on the dock because what it actually had in it was Valium and Ibuprofen, which is Advil type, and Lasix, which is a strong water pill, and some caffeine. So they threw in everything that could help anything, and it actually did help a number of things, but it wasn't the Chinese natural herbs that were on the bottle. Now I'm going to turn to my co-host Susie, and from a lay perspective, do you have any thoughts on herbal preparations? Well, Larry, it's funny you should ask, because I actually have had some personal experience with herbs recently, a little bit for headaches, but also for coping with menopausal symptoms, starting to get some pretty good hot flashes and night sweats. And I went to my local Whole Foods and bought some over-the-counter, uh, an over-the-counter soy preparation. It's interesting, at Whole Foods, they actually have a section there just for women's health, men's health, children's health, etc. Yeah, they have an enormous section there. It's unbelievable. It was helpful because I could go right, you know, it was somewhat easier to find what I was looking for when they have everything um, set up that way. So I bought my little bottle of soy, and I started taking it. I think I was taking two or three a day, whatever the bottle was saying. And I took them for about three or four weeks. I must say I did not really see much of a change in my symptoms. So it's hard to know if I didn't stay the course with it or not. I also was trying some Patadilex for headaches that I was having. I'd recently come off the birth control pill due to the menopause, and my migraines were really coming back somewhat forcefully. And I tried the Patadilex, and... I must say, I don't think it really helped me that much. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Patadolex. Uh, I think that Patadolex, it's a P-E-T-A-D-O-L-E-X. It's an offshoot of Butterbur, which has been useful for headaches. Patadolex, unlike most of the herbs, has had a number of double-blind studies that have been pretty good, and we've used it for about eight years here. Uh, I think it's actually a pretty good herb. It's one of the main things that's prescribed in Europe for headaches. And it's one of the few herbs that's really held up to scrutiny, to double-blind studies, to long-term use, and I think it's pretty safe. It's a safer form of butterbur, and um, the problem is people do have to take it twice a day. It takes three or four weeks to start helping headaches. Uh, It's a preventive. It's not an as-needed for headaches, but I think Patadolex is pretty, pretty good. For sleeping, we've had valerian root, which has been reasonable. Uh, it smells terribly sometimes. You can get valerian preparations that don't stink, but in general it can be, it can make a gag. Uh, melatonin for sleeping is not an herb, but it's a natural substance. But recently, uh, there's been some negative studies on melatonin that they haven't, it hasn't worked very well. Even three or four pills of it over the counter at night might help a little bit, but I think that it's relatively mild and people probably need a much higher dose. There's actually a newer sleeping drug, it's not an herb, called Rosarum, R-O-Z-E-R-E-M, that's based on melatonin. It's relatively natural. It's fairly mild, but it's not addicting or habit-forming, and we've had some decent luck with it, at least with mild insomnia. You know, you've used the word safe a few times in the last few minutes regarding the usage of herbs, and I've wondered about it myself. 
What exactly are the concerns, if any, with taking herbs as opposed to taking medicines in terms of safety? Well, there's two sets of side effects we worry about. Immediate annoying ones like stomach, upset stomach or diarrhea, or bad taste in the mouth some of the herbs give, or uh, vision problems, something like that. But the long-term side effects are what we worry about with drugs and herbs, uh, cancer risk, uh, stomach ulcers, and kidney problems. Most of the long-term side effects are relatively mild or inconsequential with the herbs, although not all of them. Uh, it's more with the drugs, particularly the over-the-counter drugs. Uh, ibuprofen and naproxen, the anti-inflammatories over-the-counter, really hurt the stomach, liver, but mostly the kidneys is a big problem, too. But there are long-term side effects to some of the herbs. Nothing is completely safe. Now, segueing on, a little later in the show, we'll talk about marijuana for medicinal purposes. And if we get to it, uh, we're going to talk about migraines. We'll certainly talk about migraines this week and or next week. But first, a couple of emails, comments from listeners from last week. We touched on ADD last week, attention deficit disorder, which affects about 5% of the population, and that's a lot. It's a very genetic illness, and uh, we got several emails on that. One is, uh, my 17-year-old son has ADD, is being treated, but I think that he's smoking dope. Uh, what are the problems with this and ADD, or what are the problems, what would you worry about at 17? Because he doesn't seem to see that it's a problem at all. Now, Susie, you know, I know that you've had experience with this as a social worker working in the schools with kids with drug problems. Uh, what do you think about uh, dope in a 17-year-old? Well, you know, obviously we all know that it it is common that lots and lots of kids do smoke marijuana. I would never say that it's a benign drug. I think a lot of teens would say that, though, that if their parents are questioning them about drugs, many will say, well... It's marijuana. It's not going to hurt me like other stronger drugs, so don't worry about it. And I think that's precisely where kids can get in trouble with marijuana because they do feel that it's this benign drug that it won't hurt them. But I know that you can speak to certainly the studies that have come out with uh, young people that have smoked consistently marijuana for years and how down the road it can certainly affect their memory, their cognitive abilities, and even short-term, you know, just their memories as well as their abilities to want to get up and go to school and work and do all the other things that young people should be doing. What do they tell you? You know, it's only weed. Do you hear that? If you heard that from the kids as the uh, drug counselor? Well, of course, and, you know, along with that, it's only weed is that it's natural and it grows in the ground, somewhat like the other uh, herbs we were just talking about. Yeah, arsenic is natural, but it certainly is not so safe for you. That's true. And, you know, you can certainly speak more to what else marijuana does to your body, but certainly uh, cognitively and psychologically, it can hamper an individual's desires to do what they want to do. You know, I also think, uh, we used to think in the 60s, 70s that marijuana was not a gateway to other drugs, but uh, it certainly is. Maybe it's partly because the uh, the strength of the THC tetrahydrocannabinol number 9 uh, is uh, much stronger than in the 70s uh, when dope was around uh, with that brown stuff with a lot of seeds in it. Now it's um, it's much more highly purified and stronger two to three times as strong, actually, I've seen several studies indicate. So, you know, I think it is a gateway, and it's a problem, particularly with at-risk kids. ADD kids are at risk, uh, a number of times more likely to get into drug abuse, car accidents, and actually jail. So marijuana is um, a problem, but it's tough talking to kids because they just see it as sort of like this part of life and uh, better than uh, or uh, more benign than alcohol. And I have to admit uh, that we probably have less car accidents on marijuana, although still more than if people are straight, it still does increase the risk of car accidents. But um, I think what it does to their lives, uh, along with their lungs and their brain, is not all that great. Well, you, you've brought up a couple thoughts um, in what you were just saying. One, that a lot of teens will think that, will understand, I will not drink and drive, but that it really is okay 
to smoke dope and drive, which of course we know is a fallacy, but many, many young people really feel that cognitively they can still drive, uh, drive just as well as if they hadn't smoked. Another point that I'd like to bring up is the fact that when a kid starts smoking dope can be important in terms of their career in, in drug usage. The old uh, saying, you know, delay, 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 really is important in terms of teens and, and drug usage. Typically, if a kid waits longer to try marijuana, say maybe waiting to senior year, freshman year in college versus starting as young as freshman year in high school, there's there's a good chance that they won't go on and do as many drugs as if they had started early. So I think that's another point for us as parents, teachers, uh, adults in the community is, you know, to watch when these kids are starting to smoke, smoke dope. Yeah, that's a great point. Interestingly enough, just this morning I heard um, a newer drug ad on Radio, and you know a lot of these drug addicts tend to be a little lame, but this one was pretty good. It had um, 15, a 14-year-old girl saying, uh, my name is Sally, I'm 14 years old, and I will be an alcoholic in seven years because she's drinking. And the point was that early drinking, it raises our risk for alcoholism immensely if they start drinking before 15 or so. So I, I think... Delay, delay, delay is great. Some of those drug ads always were, you remember the whole Just Say No campaign? You know, Just Say No. I don't know if that affected many of the kids, but studies show it didn't work that well. I I sort of like the one where they have talk to your parents and talk to your kids. You're the first line of defense against the kids' uh, drug abuse. Susie, what do you think about these new drug ads now that we're talking about it? Well, you know, there is one I've recently seen on television that I think is great. It shows um, various parents and their sons and daughters doing normal things like um, outside uh, raking the leaves or taking a walk together or making dinner together. And what the ad is saying is you don't have to say to your kid, we've got an important talk that we're going to do tonight. They're saying that during the course of your day when you're actually just with your kid in any type of or most type of situations, you can weave that information into them. For example, you are um, making cookies with your daughter. While you're doing it, you can say, well, you know, I saw such, such and such smoking the other day, and, you know, I worry about her that she's doing it. So that your kid doesn't feel like they're having, quote, the talk. Rather, it's just part of a normal conversation. And I think that probably goes a long way in, in staying with the kid. Yeah, I think we can extend that uh, not having the talk with the dad or the mom about sex also and uh, pregnancy and um, and STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. I think we need to have these talks, but when it's like the talk that, you know, the dad is in the living room and uh, everything, everybody's, the mom is really nervous and pacing back and forth and says, uh, okay, Heather, we're going to have the talk. You know, it doesn't exactly work out very well. Let's take a quick time out, but stay with us on TalkZone.com. The talk of planet Earth. We will build a safer world. This is TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. Now more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host, Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com. Now before we get on to our last uh or our next subject, marijuana for medicinal purposes. I wanted to read one more letter from a, uh, it was an email actually from uh, a listener about ADD. And uh, she writes in that, I think that doctors and parents and teachers for their own purposes are much too quick to put the kids on medicine. And if we just had different school uh, settings, we would be a lot better off. I have to admit, actually, that uh, occasionally I, I think kids are put on medicines a little quickly, but in general, from what I've seen from the pediatricians and uh, psychiatrists in my own practice, I don't think I see a lot of inappropriate prescribing or that people are just jumping, oh, you have mild ADD, let's give you a whole bunch of uh, Adderall or Ritalin-type medication. I, I see it more appropriate. And the problem is that when they compare the kids at age 17 who've been treated with medicine versus non-treated, the kids who are treated are much ahead of the game as far as schooling, self-esteem, 
uh, lower drug abuse, less car accidents, yada, yada, yada. So the evidence is there that early treatment does work. And it's the same with the antidepressants. People have said the same thing. Oh, we're just quick to throw around the Prozac-type medicine and get everybody on them. But I don't see a whole lot of inappropriate prescribing, particularly before age 18. We think, most people think long and hard before putting kids on the drugs, although it does happen. Suze, any comments? Well, you know, on this issue, like most of these issues, you know, we're kind of the peanut gallery just talking about it. But if you've really lived through it with having a child that has ADD and wanting to do what's best for the child, you know, I I could see where people would be torn, a concern about putting them on the medicine versus helping them to be able to learn in school and, and socialize with other kids. Yeah, I agree totally. Well, on to our next subject, which is, Marijuana for medical purposes. Should we legalize it? Should we allow it? And this has been very controversial. Actually, Canada uh, has a new cannabis-based spray, actually, that's based on marijuana type. There's a whole bunch of medications that are going to come based on cannabinoids. Uh, cannabinoids are based on that active ingredient in marijuana, and they, they may turn out to have a lot of uses, not just for pain, maybe for nausea, maybe for moods. But I think on this one, you could argue both ways. Uh, the positives are that marijuana-based medicines may help pain, uh, like with multiple sclerosis or with headaches. I know some of my patients have said over the years that marijuana does help their headaches. I never really encourage it because of what it does to their life, too. But it might help the nausea, uh, as with chemo or with nausea with migraines or even glaucoma and other conditions. The negatives, it decreases motivation. The effect on the lungs, if you have to smoke it, are not great. And the benefits, though, are not 100% proven. We don't have adequate trials with uh, most of the cannabinoids and marijuana to really say, although I think that for some conditions the evidence is, at least the anecdotal evidence is there, although the plural of anecdotes is just one little story, like my grandma took this and it helped her back pain. That's an anecdote. And the plural of anecdotes is not data and studies, but we do have a lot of evidence somewhat for marijuana. Suze, any thoughts on uh, marijuana for medical purposes? For end-stage cancer patients, if it works, I would see where most people wouldn't have a concern if there might be some long-term effects, obviously, if they are just looking for relief for the moment, for the day. Really, why wouldn't we use it for end-stage or, or for people with severe disabling pain, if, if it was going to help them. I'm not sure there are valid arguments on the other side, other than maybe it's not been proven to help 100% or something like that. When you think about all the drugs out there that are used, uh, overused, that are accessible through a prescription, that really cause many, many people to have adverse problems because they become addictive, addictive to them, it does seem that marijuana it doesn't seem so unsafe, does it? certainly has probably less side effects than most of the powerful opioids that we use, which do help. But, uh, you know, after a lot of years and actually several centuries, we still use morphine-based opioids. It's the best that we have, but we haven't developed ones with less side effects, which is sort of amazing, although there are a number of them in the pipeline coming. Well, do you think many people... T- today still see marijuana as a hippie drug, that to see it ever get legalized in our country, would certainly there'd be a lot of hurdles to go over to see that happen. Yeah, I think that uh, there's two issues. We're talking about legalizing medicinal marijuana, legalizing marijuana in general for recreational use uh, or legalizing drugs is another interesting argument that you can argue both sides. Certainly, I think there's a lot better argument for legalizing marijuana than legalizing all drugs. I don't know if I want to extend uh, legalization to from marijuana to cocaine and heroin and club drugs or whatever, but legalizing marijuana for non-medicinal uses is a whole other subject that's interesting. I certainly think we should decriminalize it and not waste a lot of taxpayers' dollars keeping people locked up for years for use of marijuana, but um, I'm not sure about legalizing it. There's a lot of arguments on both sides. Well, next week we're going to talk about uh, migraines at length. Uh, we're running out of time to talk about such a lengthy, meaty subject as migraines right now. But another call from a listener from last week 
Dr. Robbins, what do you think about vaccines and the environment causing the increase in autism? Do you think that we should avoid vaccinating our kids? You know, it, it is interesting that we've seen an increase in autism. I think with some illnesses, we don't know if they've really increased because we didn't have adequate studies 40 years ago. And we're not talking about, uh, we are talking about the autistic spectrum disorder, ASD, uh, which is just like the bipolar spectrum or ADD spectrum, uh, where we're not just talking about the severe end of the spectrum, but we've talked a lot more about the milder end of the autistic spectrum. And out of England, actually, there was a report in, I believe it was Lancet or British Medical Journal, 1999, 2000, that vaccines may, uh, because of mercury, mercury-containing vaccines may increase autism. And they had to actually retract that study, interestingly enough, very few studies are actually retracted. They retracted that study because of um, uh, it was actually backed by the tort association, by the lawyers who stood to gain from suing the vaccine manufacturers. And subsequently, several large studies have indicated that vaccines are probably not implicated or problem with autism. And the problem with not vaccinating large groups of kids such as happened after that in England, is that we see an increase in measles and all the serious things, diphtheria possibly, that we're trying to vaccinate against. We can't just stop vaccinating. Plus, we haven't seen evidence really come through in the studies that vaccines were implicated. I think it's going to be a lot more complicated than one answer with autism. And on future shows, we'll talk about the spectrum of autism. I think that it's... um that it's sad that we're seeing an increase because it's difficult to be autistic. It's difficult to have a child that's autistic. Uh, it just adds complications to everybody's lives. Uh, but uh, the kids are doing better and better these days because of better recognition and, and therapy, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that we can blame it on one thing. It's going to be a combination of environment and genes and who knows what else. Well, we're almost ready to wrap up uh, this week's program. Susie, any other uh, interesting tidbits or items? You know, I just saw recently in the newspaper was a plug for Madonna, and actually for once it was not about a concert of hers or some uh, outrageous statement that she's made. Rather, she has uh, pledged at least $3 million to a small southern African country to help with its over 1 million AIDS orphans in education and food. So I thought that was wonderful. That's pretty awesome. Uh, it reminds me of the, on a grander scale, the Bill Gates Foundation, how much they're going to be giving to the third world and uh, actually administrating it well, not just giving it to people who are going to uh, uh, waste the money. You know, AIDS in Africa has been an amazing story. There's some small successes coming through with education. And then you have on a grand scale, for instance, the leadership of South Africa denying it, just like uh, denying anything, denying that AIDS is transmitted sexually, denying the problem, and that doesn't help anything. Some other countries, they're actually making some inroads and a little bit of money, relatively little bit of money, goes an incredibly long way. And I think we have to concentrate on Africa with not just AIDS, but with a number of the other illnesses. We'll talk more about that in future shows. And if you want to email us with any topics, any comments, any questions, criticisms, please just click on or Robbins at AOL.com. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. 